This is Legacy Battle. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and hit that like button on whatever you're listening on. I'm Michael Adams, creator of Legacy Battle. My panelists tonight from the Good Iron Battle Zone, Brian King, the Director of Operations for the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame, Scott Crawford. And as always, we got from Ball State, Paul Havocott here. Our special guest tonight played in Major League Baseball from 1973 to 1987. Played with the Astros, Angels, Pirates, Red Sox, Yankees, and Phillies. Uh, you can also add in two years in Japan in the Pacific League. They call him the Hitman. He's a World Series winner. He's a, a, a all-star in Major League Baseball. 28 years coaching experience. We, we have just the, the Hitman, Michael Eastler here. Michael, thank you so much for coming on. No problem, Mike. I enjoy it. I enjoy it. Love talking baseball. Always have. Awesome, awesome. So tonight we're going to be debating. The greatest World Series winner of the 1970s, and if you if you love World Series, just go back in our archives. We've done 2010s, 2000s, 90s, 80s. We're on the 70s now. As always, we'll have our Q and A for uh, Michael after, uh, about his career afterwards. But we're going to start tonight out with the 1979 Pittsburgh Pirates. That's right. I took the 79 Buccos, 98 and 64 that year, managed by Chuck Tanner. Got my Chuck Tanner autographed T-shirt on. You probably can't see it, but uh, there you go. <laughs> back then, they're playing at good old Three River Stadium. Had a good key trade in the off season. Well, actually, not in the off season, but in June of '79, uh, they ended up getting Bill Madlock, Lenny Randall, and Dave Roberts uh, off the Giants. So that ends up Bill Madlock, especially, ends up kind of being a key piece later on. But the reason I went with the Pirates is basically how they gelled as a family. I mean, it, it might not have been the most overpowering team or maybe even the most talented team, but uh, everybody in the dugout agreed that they were close and treated each other like family. Our own Mike Easler, I found a quote. Let's see if he says this was correct or not, but he said, we just treated each other like brothers. All of us got along, and if you didn't get along with somebody – Willie Stargell made sure you got along with everybody. That's right. That's what That's Mike right. said. That's and then uh, Phil Gardner batted 500 during the World Series, said Pop Stargell was the man who made the Pirates a family. He was so well-loved and respected by everybody. Uh, we had guys from Panama, black players from the hood, white players from the hood. We had all kinds of socioeconomic backgrounds. And I think Willie Stargell's presence held and leadership held that all together. And uh, Pops that year, he was 39. Still playing at a high level, but he would nudge you too. I remember reading somewhere we told Kent to Colby, "Hey man, you come play first, and I'll pitch if you're going to pitch that guy that way." So he he keep you in line. He uh, kept the team together, but you know, is it the best team? You know, let you guys decide. I mean, they didn't really overpower you with pitching. They had Bibby, Blylevin, Candelaria. Um, each had like 12, 12 wins. Candelaria had fourteen wins. Madlock led the team with 328 batting average. I mentioned him above in the trade. Dave Parker, one of my all-time favorites, was at 310. Power-wise, you're talking about Willie Stargell with 32 home runs. Dave Parker with 25. But uh, the Pirates get to the World Series that year, and it was sort of like a rematch from, a, it was a 70 or 71. It was 71. They played the Orioles, and uh, a few of them remained from that uh, team. Stargell was one of them, Sanguian. I think the Orioles had Jim Palmer, uh, maybe Earl Weaver. There's a couple other ones too. But you had a lot of folklore and sort of baseball magic that season. Just like in the 71 series, a game was 
affected by the rain. And in uh, 79, it was game one. It was actually postponed by the rain. And in 71, that happened too, where there was a rain rain delay. And uh, like I said before, Willie Stargell, seven, uh, 39 that year, oldest player to win the MVP honors for both National League and the World Series. In the World Series, he hit 400 with a record seven extra base hits and matched Reggie Jackson's record of 25 total bases that was uh, set in 77. Uh, during the World Series, unfortunately, Chuck Tanner's mom died morning of game five. This was kind of mentioned through telecasts. Uh, Howard Cosell brought it up. Uh, 1960 World Series hero Bill Mazeroski threw out the first pitch in game five. Um, things looking pretty bleak as the series went on. Game four, DeColby took the loss, and the Bucks were down three games to one. We got beat nine to six. Uh, but thanks to some magic and perseverance, Pirates took the next three games, ended up winning the series in seven, and it became only one of six teams in the 20th century to overcome a three-to-one deficit in the World Series. I can't wait to hear what Mike says about this. I know this is <laughs> going to be the winner because of how magical this team was. I will shut up now. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Mike, I'm going to come to you here. Some of us on this panel tonight grew up in Pittsburgh, and we always heard – the chemistry, the chemistry of this team. They still talk about it today that there has never been a more tight-knit team. So just your thoughts on, on that. Was it as great as everyone says? And, and the whole we are family thing, I mean, that was that was huge in the Berg. So just tell us a little bit about your experience on that 79, being part of that team. Well, Mike and Paul, the thing about it is people don't understand that it all started with Chuck Tanner. Chuck Tanner had a way of mending people, getting people together, and getting players to, um, to complement each other, meaning I was a pinch hitter. Um, Matt Alexander was a pinch runner. Uh, Kent DeCovey come in and he gets light lefties and righties out. And that game five you're talking about, I believe um, Jim Rooker started that game, and, and he went about five or six innings. Just shut them down, you know. And, and when um, – when it started, we had a way of getting everybody to believe in themselves, number one, and number two, believe in the team. It had to be team-orientated, orient otherwise Willie would get on you hard in the clubhouse, and he was very vocal. I mean, you go out there and lay down and don't want to play one day, you would hear it definitely, definitely from, um, you know, from what it started doing. And Dave Parker was really was on the field leader. He just led by example, the way he played the game, how hard he played the game. And you're talking about that move with um, Bill Matlock. That was one of the greatest moves that we made, him and Phil Garner and Tim Foley. Don't forget about Tim Foley. He was the infield captain. You know, he went around and just made sure everybody was on the same wavelength. And Matlock got key hits. People used to um, – Bill Matlock used to say, he said, um, I might not be the best third baseman, but you're the, you're the best that I got. I, I mean, the Pirates are the best that they got, you know. So, therefore, he always believed himself. We had guys that just really believed themselves, and Chuck Tanner always pat us on the back and made sure we feel good about a win or a loss. And when he came in in that game five, when he lost his mother that night, we had a little team meeting, and he said, look, this is what we got to do. We just got to go out there and play the game. We're supposed to get played. I know we're down three to one, but it makes no difference. If you believe in yourself and you feel you could win this game, I'm here. My mother's in heaven now. He said, let's go out there and win this whole thing. And doggone if we didn't. Boy, that was a beautiful, beautiful series. And 
He did not surprise me. Willie Stargell and company, Bill Madlock, Dave Parker. Don't forget about Omar Moreno. He had like 96 bases stolen that year. Yeah. He was just running everywhere. You know, we had good outfielders, Bill Robinson and John Milner and, you know, and just um, Dave Parker in right center field with Omar Moreno. We had catching um, um Ed Ott was catching. He was a he was a he was really a moose behind home plate. We had Steve Nicosia, you know, that complimented him. I believe that was Steve Nicosia's rookie year, something like that. So I mean, we everybody just played up until you, you know, we had a role. Everybody had a role to play. And Chuck Nanner knew how to put us in the right role in the right way, you know, to win ball games. I'm sure we're gonna have some more questions about the the '79 and your, your your time on the Pirates when we get to our Q and A. But let, let's move to our next team tonight, and that's gonna be the '75 uh, Reds. Yeah, for sure. I mean, '75 uh, Reds, the big red machine of the '70s. I mean, three of the four series we're gonna talk about tonight all went seven games, so they're all really actually pretty close series. Uh, but big red machine. I mean, they went to the World Series four times in the '70s six times in LCS. So they're basically the team of the decade um, winning and they won two world series in 75. They won 108 games, which is the most of, of uh, teams we're talking about, I guess, tied with Baltimore in the, in 1970, but still 108 wins in the regular season. I mean, you look down the lineup, you got Rose, Bench, Perez, Concepcion, Joe Morgan, Foster, Griffey. I mean, how do you, how do you match that lineup? I mean, surprised they didn't win more world series with, with those, most of those guys and their lineups for several years. But, um, you know, big game six, obviously, with Fiskett and that home run. Um, I learned something about that home run the other day, that uh, the cameraman wasn't supposed to be pointing at Carlton Fisk. He's supposed to be following the baseball. and uh, hmm. But he messed up and followed Fisk. And yeah, that turned out to be that epic Fisk waving the ball, uh, the home run ball. So that ended up being pretty cool. Yeah. But uh, even in game seven, they were down 3 nothing in the six, and they turned around a 1-4-3. So they had the big comeback. Um, and basically, they had three, three good hitters in the World Series that year. It was Rose, Griffey, and Geronimo. Those are the three best guys. And their starters weren't great, but their bullpen was ERA was under three. So they uh, basically saved it for the, for the bullpen games. Um, you look at the Red Sox, who lost. I mean, they, the Reds beat up their best pitcher, Rick Wise. They gave him an ERA over eight in the World Series, and he was the Red Sox best pitcher in the World Series. So, um, you know, the Reds turned it on. They knew when to hit, and uh, they knew when to, to get the bullpen in there and uh, and shut down those hot Red Sox hitters. So that's uh, that's my argument for 75. So, Mike, he, he mentions just just the Hall of Fame list here. Joe Morgan, Johnny Bench, Pete Rose, Ken Griffey Sr. is not in the Hall, but, I mean, he's a fantastic player. I mean, I, I my opinion, this is the best hitting team we're talking about tonight. Um, I'm sure you had some experiences with that big red machine. So, you know, how do you get those guys out? And what are your thoughts on that team as a whole? You know, when I got called up, I used to get called up by the Astros. When I was the Astros, I got called up like 73, 74, 75, right around the same time. I was basically a rookie then just trying to make it to the major leagues. But I tell you one thing, when we played Cincinnati, I said, oh, my goodness. You know, Johnny Bench behind home plate, Joe Morgan turning double plays, him and Concepcion, you know, uh, what is it, um, Perez at first base and Griffey in the outfield, along with um, Geronimo had one of the greatest arms. You can see Ed Armbrister had that controversial play at home plate. Um, they just had uh, and Pete Rose, you know, all him. He's always a catalyst and kept everything going on the field. 
that team was, you know, and it was led by Sparky Anderson. You know, a lot of times people underestimate the manager on these ball clubs. When you got guys of that caliber, that Hall of Fame type caliber, how do you get them to play hard day in and day out and take pride in what they do? And this is where Sparky Anderson came in. You know, they called him, what did they call him? Um, they called him um, Captain Hook. Captain Hook, I think, because they ran into trouble. He'll get another guy in there. Somebody get in trouble, he'll bring another reliever in there. He just he, he was very similar to Chuck Tanner, how he motivated guys, kept guys playing at the highest level. And he had, you know, he had a team where everybody complimented each other. And they had a team full of leaders, leaders. All of them get hit. Johnny Bench, Joe Morgan, Pete Rose, Concepcion, Griffey, Geronimo Perez. I mean, them guys get flat out raked. And, and George Foster, people underestimate, he had 50-something home runs. I, I don't know what year it was. It might have been that year, 50-something home runs. They just had some great talent, and they was led by a great manager in um, Sparky Anderson. Hey, Paul, let me ask you real quick. They did play the Boston Red Sox. This was during the, uh, well, the, what was it, 100, 100 years curse, something like that? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Do you think the curse played into it, Paul? Doesn't don't the curses always play into things? I mean, isn't, there you go. There you I, go. that's the safest answer. Yes, that's the safest answer. <laughs> yeah. There you go. All right, let's move on to the 1973 Athletics. All right, 73 A's, uh, 94 and 68, first in the AL West. The manager was Dick Williams. Uh, the 72 A's were world champions, but I think this year's team was even better. Um, they upgraded the catcher position by bringing in two-time all-star Ray Fossey. Um, at second base, Dick Green was healthy all year this time. He was injured for much of 72. And Bill North gave them a much better range at center field, and he stole 52 bases. Um, uh, Gene uh, Tanachi. Um, Sal Bando, who was fourth in the AL uh, MVP voting that year, and AL MVP Reggie Jackson all had 24 or, or more homers. Uh, Burt Caponaris, he was a fan favorite, 34 stolen bases. Uh, Reggie Jackson, he also added 22 uh, stolen bases. So collectively, they had the second most in the league. Um, they also scored the most runs. They had the most sack hits, the most sack flies. So that offense was just really, really great at manufacturing runs. Um, the pitching staff featured not one, not two, but three 20-game winners. You had Kent uh, Holtzman, you had Vada Blue, and Catfish Hunter. Uh, Catfish was third in a Cy Young voting that year. Uh, and then in the bullpen, you had the great Rolly Fingers. I mean, awesome mustache. Um, you know, he was really coming into his own at that time. He was named to his first All-Star game that year. But as a unit, they were ranked second in ERA, second in saves, second in shutouts, and gave up the second fewest hits. Uh, the Orioles were first in all of those categories. Um, I mentioned them because in the ALCS, the A's had to face that great Orioles pitching staff, and they did very well. Uh, after getting blanked at 6 nothing in game one, the A's scored 15 runs over the next four games to take that series in five. In the World Series, they had to face Tom Seaver and the Mets. Uh, the A's were down three games to two, but were able to defeat Seaver in game six, uh, which was also Catfish Hunter's third win of that series. Uh, then won game seven to bring home the World Series trophy for a second consecutive season. I ended up being the second of, of three consecutive. Um, and it was the first chapter of Reggie Jackson's uh, Mr. October saga, um, as he was building. Um, you know, he batted 310, 
uh, six RBIs, five extra base hits, uh, including a homer in game seven, and was named a World Series MVP. So that's the 73 A's. So, Mike, the 73 A's, they do something that is a lost art today. They could play small ball. We we just we don't see that in baseball very much anymore. Um, you know what are your what are your thoughts on that? Uh, like you're 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 a coach, you're a trainer. What's happened to the small ball? And then and, you know just give us your thoughts on that that A's team. You know it's very sad that you watch baseball now and you see the way it's played. I never seen so many guys strike out in key situations in my life. They don't move the runners over. You know, they don't get guys in from third base. Um, I don't very seldom see the hit and run thrown on or even the stolen base. You see it every once where I look like they just, oh, well, we better run and do something. All the guys you name, you know, Fossey and Jackson and Bill North and, I mean, Sal Bando, Campanaris, them guys are baseball players. And I'm talking about real, real baseball players. That's how I learned the game, watching them guys play. I was in the minor league from 69 to 70. I stayed in the minor leagues 10 years, actually, before I got to the major leagues. And that's the kind of players I watched and had to, um, you know, imitate when I got to the big leagues. So that was my example. So I knew no other way. When I got to Pirates, when I had to get a guy over, I sacrificed myself and just pulled the ball to the right side. When a guy at third base, I choke up and I make sure I make contact, get the guy from third base. All the players you named, them guys did that. That's the way they played the game of baseball. And that starting staff, as you say, Holtzman, by the blue, catfish, rock. And in the bullpen, Roddy Fingers, it was bullpen, starting pitcher. And starting pitching, you had to pull them out the game. Right now, they get five and fly. They get six innings. It's like, oh, my job is over. Back then, them guys pitched until they could fall out. They had no pitch count. These guys came in there and tried to win that ball game. You had to pull the ball out your hand in the seventh and eighth inning to get them out the game. Them guys were, I, I say real ball players. I'm talking about. They played the game right, and again, a great manager in Dick Williams. And if you notice, all the teams that win, they really have a good, smart, hard-nosed manager, and that was Dick Williams. And um, and with that team back then, I mean, it didn't surprise me. I watched the games, and I said, that's the way you play baseball, and I just loved it with a passion. They had one or two home run hitters on each team. All the rest of the guys were manufactured runs. They still the base, get them over, get them in. You know, hit and run, move guys, da 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 It's a lost art now. It's very sad because these guys are talented. They're able to do it. But, you know, now they just don't play the game that way. It's too much analytics. Hit the ball in the air. Tilt your back shoulder. Try to lift the ball. You know, stuff like that. And it's terrible. It's terrible. It's terrible. But, you know, the game is, um, you know, you know, these guys are very talented. These guys get the ball a long way. I understand that. But small ball is gone. And all the teams you're naming, they all play the game the right way. Scott, Brian mentioned uh, Mr. October, Reggie Jackson. In the last 40 years, has anyone had playoff performances like him, in your opinion? No, I mean, he, he's Mr. October, right? I mean, <laughs> you, you look at some pitcher-wise, I mean, Marion Rivera, but obviously pitching over the hitting. Um, but uh, top of my head, I mean, Reggie Reggie got a nickname for a reason, and, and uh, he, he definitely liked his nickname because he was pretty – Pretty high, high on himself, and you could back it up. Yes, two, two came to my mind. It was um, Mr. November right here, Derek Jeter, Derek and Jeter. then uh, Baumgartner, if we're going to talk pitchers, and that, that guy's lights out in the World Series. But uh, let's move to our final team tonight, and that's going to be the 1970 Orioles. And uh, I'm going to start this out with a quote from manager Earl Weaver. 
A manager's job is simple. For 162 games, you try not to screw up. And that smart stuff that your organization did last December, don't screw it up. So uh, just very, uh, very good words there from a Hall of Fame manager, I might add, Earl Weaver. So let, let's talk about these Orioles. Uh, the record 108-54, so that 108 ties the high tonight for the for the wins. Um, and this is a team that I really liked because they lost the World Series the year before to the 69 Miracle Mets, and, uh, you know, they were supposed to win that series. And that could have really deflated them a lot coming into 1970, but they just went out there and tore it up. Um so they in the playoffs, they tore it up to they had the best playoff record tonight. Twins swept them 3-0. Then they play the Reds in the World Series 4-1. So they only lost one game in that in that uh, playoffs. Um, so I know that we always say that pitching wins championships. So the Orioles, they're also throwing three 20 game winners um, led by the best pitcher tonight. Uh, that we're talking about on any team, and that's Jim Palmer, uh, at least in my opinion. But 3.15 uh, team ERA, that's the best tonight. Strikeouts, 941 as a team. That is best tonight. And uh, ironically, I, I, I didn't believe, I didn't think it'd be accurate, but the Pirates were second tonight in strikeouts uh, by their pitchers. And then we got walks. They have the lowest amount walk total tonight, the, the Orioles pitching staff. And that 517 earned runs, best tonight. So I have the best pitching staff. We I, pitching wins championships. But I'll just say I'll just mention a little bit about the hitting here real quick. Um, they do have the most home runs of all the teams tonight. They weren't so great in all the other hitting statistics tonight, but they did have the most home runs. And every person in their starting lineup had 10 or more homers, um, except for uh, short start shortstop Mark Bellinger, who he was an eight-time gold glover. Back in the 70s, shortstops didn't have to hit. They just had to field. So um, a lot different game back then. Um, some big names on this team, though. Davey Johnson, you know, went on to coach the Mets. Um, Brooks Robinson, Hall of Famer. Frank Robinson, Hall of Famer. Um, we just look at fielding, 117 eras in the field. That's the best of all the teams we're talking about tonight. Um and then just that playoff run, they scored 60 runs in eight games in the playoffs. That's an average of 7.5 runs a game in the playoffs. That's incredible. So I, I, I come back to you here, Mike. Pitching wins championships. Palmer is, is just a fantastic pitcher. You know, how, when, you're, when you're going up against a staff like that, and Brian had one as well, it had 320 game winners. In, in, a, in a short series, you know, what are you trying to do just to, to survive and push that series on when you're facing pitching like that? You know, Willie Stroud used to say that when he said when he faced the Dodgers staff, the old Dodgers staff with Kofax, um, you know, them guys over there. He said, Mike, if you go into a series with a scheme like that, you hope to come out there with two or three hits, if any. He said it's hard to get runs. It's hard to manufacture runs. All you do is hope and pray that they have a bad game. And that's all you can do. Wait for the mistakes. Hope and pray that they have a bad game and they make mistakes. And if you look at it again, again, that team had a great leader and a Hall of Fame manager in Earl Weaver. Earl Weaver knew how to control the game, control the umpires. He knew his pitching staff. You know, he didn't let them go too long. He knew when to take them out and put them in. How to use his bullpen. 
And, um, you know, you talk about that lineup, you know, with um, Brooks Robinson, Frank Robinson. Um, uh, I think Boo Powell's on that team, too. Boo Powell, you know, they just had a great ball club, and they could pick it. They didn't make a lot of errors. And they went about the game the same way. They played the game the right way, did the small things to win ball games. And they had a great, you know, starting staff, three, you know, all-star pitchers. And it's just hard to beat guys like that. Matter of fact, the next year they went back to the World Series. And that's when, they, you know, the Pirates beat them in, um, you know, in 71, I believe. And, um, and they, had, they still had that same great team. Well, you know, the Pirates found a way to beat them in 71. So, I mean, great teams have great pitching. They got great defense. And they got a good manager that knows how to manipulate each guy and, and know how to put them, where to put them, when to put them in, when to take them out. So let's move into our vote tonight. Can't vote for your own, as usual. And uh, I'm going to start out the vote tonight. I don't vote first often. But, uh, Paul, you know, I, I, I grew up in Pittsburgh. I, I love I love the Pirates. And I do think, like, chemistry-wise, you know, if I was voting on chemistry tonight, it's them. They they made – it was a special run. Um, but I went chemistry-wise when I voted for the Marlins one year. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch that up this time. Between the Reds and the A's, um, I just, I like the Reds a little better. Um, Big Red Machine, I just think they hit a little better. They might not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just going with the Reds. That's, that's my pick. So, Paul, go ahead. Your vote was almost as long as your long-winded Kevin Adams argument for your <laughs> crappy Orioles team. Number, number one. The Orioles would have lost to the Pirates because they did lose to the Pirates in 71, so they're not the best team. Stats schmat for all your six hours worth of topic there. I'm going, since I can't go with my own, I'll go with Scott's Red Sox because... Yeah, just the Reds, stars. just the Reds. Or the Reds, I'm sorry, the Reds, because they had that Fisk moment. The Fisk, oh, that Fisk moment. That was such a great moment. All right, and then and by the way, I was about forty five seconds less than you on my argument, but oh, let's, it's let's, it's let's it's move to Brian. Longer. <laughs> okay, uh, this is actually kind of tough, you know, when you start weighing different things. It's like each one of these teams has different strengths. I mean, you have that you have the the red machine there, you know, the the offense, and then you have the the great pitching staff and fielding of the Orioles, and then the Pirates with the you know, the, the chemistry and everything. So it, it is actually really tough when you start laying it out. But to me, I think that the Orioles have the pitching and the fielding and they had, they had some bats there too. that could get it done. So I got I think they got more strengths than the other ones. I'm going to go with the Orioles. Okay. Scott. All right. Well, I'm, uh, I might just have to agree with Brian here for two, two reasons. Um, the, the that's the only series that didn't go seven games. The Orioles won it in five, and and all all those stats you did throw at us about pitching. I mean, they had the best pitching in all of it, and and pitching defense win baseball games and win the World Series. So I'm going seventy Orioles. Okay, Mike, we come to you. You can you can pick any team you want. Well, you know. I got to pick the Buckos. I got to pick the Buckos. You know, that's the team Finally. I know. That's the team Thank I'm part God. of. And goodness gracious, we, um, we just played the game the right way. We played hard. We played. We came to play. You know, we had fun. We enjoyed the game. It didn't make a difference what the score was. We always felt we could win. We had a good bullpen. And if you remember, in, in, in the playoffs, uh, we played against Cincinnati. Uh, I think we shut them down in three games, I believe. And um, Chuck Tanner kind of, um, you know, switched things around. 
he pitched um he pitched Kit to Kobe like in the seventh or eighth inning. Then he came in and had Don Robinson come and close the game out a couple of times. So Chandler knew how to manipulate his pieces and how to use it, you know, like a chess game. And uh, plus I was part of that. He pinch hit me in the game. I pinched it a couple of times. And one day I had a right hand in one game. We had a right hand, I believe that Sunday game when we came back the fourth game, um, fifth game, and um he pinch hit Manny Sangin. He had a big hit to right field to drive in the run instead of going with me, conventional left being right and right being left. He brought in the veteran Manny thing again. They got a big hit to right field. So it's just like, and I was part of that club, and I can I can experience it. I can still taste it in my mouth, and I just have to go with the 79 Pirates. Plus, uh, all those other teams had a theme song, right, Mike? You had the, yeah, the Sister we Sledge. We are family. We are family. Mike, what was the <laughs> Orioles' 1970 theme song? I don't what was, know. What was it? Was it? I, no, it was it. Was, no, it, was no, no. <laughs> the answer is they had no theme song. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's two votes for the Reds tonight, two votes for the Orioles, one for the Pirates. So we, we got to end the show in a tie. It's been a long time since that. But uh, <laughs> let's move into our Q&A. And uh, we're going to go Scott, Brian, Paul, and then me. All right. Uh, Michael, a month or so ago, we were talking about third basemen and, and maybe who's the best of the whichever generation we were talking about, I guess, the recent generation. And, and you played with Wade Boggs. How, how how good was Wade Boggs on, on both sides of the ball? We know he could hit, but what about his defense, too? What do you think about Wade Boggs? You know, people don't realize when I joined the Red Sox in 1986, no, 84. I joined the Red Sox in 84, and I heard about his bat, but I really never heard too much about his fielding. And uh, he worked hard in batting cage. I mean, I loved to watch that man hit. I just loved it. And people don't realize he had more power than people think he does. He could hit 25 home runs every year if he wanted to. But his goal was to win batting titles and get his, you know, 200 hits every year. But every game before the game about, you know, we had to be on the field like 4, 4.15 for batting practice. He might get on the field at 3, 3.30 and just take ground balls by himself. That's all he did is took ground balls, turning double plays, coming in on balls. He turned out to be a really, really good infielder. I mean, I, I, he might have won a couple of gold gloves because when he first came up, he wasn't that good of um, third baseman. But I saw that man work at it every single game, almost home game that we were home. And uh, he made himself into a Hall of Fame ball player. So, Mike, during your playing days in, the, in Major League Baseball, like, you know, basically the 70s and the 80s, uh, the percentage of black players on rosters was at its highest. Uh, it was at about 18 to 19 percent. Uh, mm -hmm. Since then, that percentage has declined to about 7 percent. So you've been around the game for many decades. Uh, what do you believe are the leading reasons for this trend? Well, you know, I think kids are being um, led in a different direction. I think they're playing football, more football, and trying to get scholarships to football, you know, to college. And they're playing basketball. They're just being led away from baseball. And I, I get to work with a lot of kids, you know, during my years, you know, um, you know, being a coach. And the talent's there. They're just not playing the game the way they used to. You know, they're, um, you know, the video games, uh, whatever they be doing on their off time. And um, they play to a certain level. Then they get to high school to see, like, you know, a lot of black and, you know, black players just don't want to put the time in. You know, I don't know if it's done with the family structure or what's happening at home with the fathers and everything like that. But there's a lot of, lot of, lot of great black ball players out here. It's just a matter of them just keep playing the game and hopefully go to college, junior college, if they don't get signed out of high school and, you know, regular college and um, just play the game. They're just not playing the game the way they used to. I think they're going more for football and basketball. 
Mike, you're a good hitter. You were a good hitter. You're a hitting coach. So I want to know, and a lot of people probably want to know, what are the most common reasons for a slump and how do you recommend people get out of slumps? Well, that's a good idea. I mean, that's a good question. You know, slumps come from when you get your timing is off. It's mostly timing. Timing more than anything. Um, I don't want to, I don't like to criticize coaches, but a lot of coaches really do not know what they're looking for in a hitter and what a hitter needs to do to stay consistent. You know, to me, you have to start with the balance. You know, most of these hitters aren't balanced from the feet, you know, from the waist up, excuse me, from the feet up. Everything starts with your base. They do not have good foundation when they're hitting. And their back sometimes is wrapped around their head, so the ball, it takes a long time to get around the ball. And the projection of the bat, everything you see is, is this way, is this way, going up towards the ball. It's going to down through the ball, down through the ball. See, but you can't do any of that unless your foundation and your base is fine. So there should be drills. I have drills that I do with hitters to make sure they stay consistently on their legs, doing the thing with their lower half, and it makes their path to the ball and through the ball much easier. And I really work middle to outside, going using the whole field. It's like they talk about Aaron Judge, you know, when he gets hot, he hits the ball to the right side of the field and uses short court out there in right field. But it seems like hitters get in slumps when they get into the pull mode. Look at Joey Gallo. Everything is this way, this way, pulling off the ball instead of going to the ball, to the ball and through the ball. And if you know all the great hitters that you see that's having great years, you know, they're using the whole field, hitting the ball from gap to gap, gap to gap. Uh, and a lot of them don't even know how they're breaking balls. I mean, it's funny. I watch the game nowadays, and they're swinging over the top of breaking ball, top of break ball. The way you hit a break ball, you got it inside out. You got to stay inside the ball to hit it the other way, you know, because the ball is spinning already. So if you go to the top of it, you're going to roll over it. So you got to catch it inside of it and serve it the other way, inside out of the other way. You know, you look at Tony Gwynn, um, Rod Carew, um, all the great Don Madley. I can go on and on. All the great hitters, Dave Parkers, all of them, the win batting titles of Miguel Cabreras. I can go on and on. All of them use the right field, center field. They pull when the pitcher makes a mistake, a hanging breaking ball. Bam. But if they don't stay every day with drills, working on up the middle, opposite field, up the middle, opposite field, they're going to get in a slump because pitchers, nowadays, they're throwing hard as hell. You know, they're bringing it up there. So they bow, bow. They rush you here. And then they get you out of the way. Then you're looking for that fastball. I call it cheating. They cheat for that fastball. So they're opening that backside up. And that leaves the outside corner vulnerable. That's why they can't hit that slider low and away. But I don't think they know how to hit, you know, the sliders or the breaking ball. And a lot of them don't know how to hit the ball off the field with authority. They might punch it over there, get lucky and hit one over there. But it's not like they do it at will when they want to. Most of the hitters on great teams, on good teams, all the guys you named on them, the old team, they use the whole field, the whole field. They hit for average and they hit for power. Nowadays, if they hit for power, they're satisfied. And they're paying them to be mediocre. And that's the sad part of the game. So you've been a part of the biggest rivalry on both sides in baseball, which is Red Sox-Yankees. 1986, the Sox trade you to the Yankees for Don Baylor. Great, great player, Don Baylor. Um, so, as I mentioned, that's like the biggest rivalry in baseball. So, what were your thoughts when you found out you were being traded to the Yankees? And and do do the fans differ at all 
in how they act with that rivalry, in your opinion? Okay, number one question. I was happy to go to the Yankees. I needed to change. I wanted to change. And I couldn't think of a better team to go to than the Yankees. Because I love going into Yankee Stadium as a Red Sox to play the game. Yes, there's a little, there's a little electricity in the air. And there's a little quiet hatred for each other. But, that's the, you know, that's baseball. That's the way you get up for a game. I mean, that was good. It gets your adrenaline flowing. But to end my career in a, you know, a Yankee uniform, to me, that was an honor to my whole career because I spent 10 years trying to make it. I stayed, you know, 10 plus years in the major leagues. And to end my career in the United States with the Yankees of the great hitters, the great ball club, all the championships they had, all the legends that played in that ballpark, I was part of that legend, you know, you know, being a, a left-handed hitter in, in Yankee Stadium. I just wasn't a pull hitter, so I would, I didn't really fit the Yankee Stadium type left-handed hitter they were looking for, but I still hit 300 when I got there because I knew how to hit. And I used the whole field. I stuck with my plan, staying up the middle off the field. My first month there, I tried to pull the ball. I tried to do it, but that's not me. So I had to go back to my inside-out swing and see Fenway Park was made for my swing. And that's where I hit. I had a great year in 1984 because I got a chance to hit balls off the wall and over the wall. And I had the power to do it opposite the field. That's the best thing happened to me when I got traded there. But when I got to the Yankees, I just could flat out hit there. I didn't care what they threw, who they threw, what stadium. But to end up in Yankees in the Yankee uniform, to me, that was an honor to my career. One more each. Same order, guys. All right, Michael. You, you, Mike, you spent your last two years in Japan and... Uh... And some good years. Your two years were good there. What? Uh, tell us about an experience over in Japan, and and also what's what? Do you, what did you see as the major difference between playing Major League Baseball compared to over in Japan? You know, Japanese baseball is very fundamentally sound. They make sure you know how to bunt, you know how to take a lead at bases, you know how to run the bases, and you better play good defense or you won't be out there. They're big in the fundamentals, boy. Just turning the double play, backing up the outfielders, hitting the cutoff man, just playing the game the right way. And um, some of the athletes weren't as big as strong as American athletes, but they played a good brand of baseball. I, I mean, I truly enjoyed it. And the thing I learned over there was I learned how to, um, how can you say, pay attention to the small things as far as hitting, as far as fielding, as far as the way they went about the game. They didn't really, they didn't have as much fun as we did. They, it was so serious over there, you know, that, um, you know, they, a lot of times they weren't having fun. And I brought fun when I was over there. I was a veteran and I had my years in the States. and I could hit in my sleep by then. I knew I could hit. I didn't care what they threw. And they had good arms over there. People don't realize, Otani's and, and some of these pitchers that came over here, them guys can pitch over there. And they got pinpoint control a lot of times they overthrow them guys so much that their arms get tired. But uh, when they get over here, these guys, are, they can't believe they don't throw as much as they did over there. They throw every single day over there in Japan. The brand of baseball was good. It was solid. And I learned to watch how they coach because I learned how to coach hitters because I was paying attention to more basic fundamentals and basic little things you had to do to be a good hitter. If you notice them, they're very mechanical. 
They hold it back up front end, then they drop, then they turn, boom, 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 boom. They worry about little mechanical things that really make a big difference. The only reason they may not, you know, hit the way they do over, you know, like they did over there, because the pitching's a little bit tougher and they throw a little bit harder over here in the United States. But baseball was great in Japan. I loved it for the two years. Mike, in, in 1981, you were selected for the All-Star team, um, and you had an opportunity to play in your hometown of Cleveland. Uh, you also scored the tying run. So what was that entire experience like for you? Well, that was the greatest experience of my career, period. It was more greater than winning the World Series. Um, that 1980 year, I had a great year in Pittsburgh. They finally gave me a chance to play after so many years in minor leagues and sitting on the bench in 79, getting my, you know, just my experience there, playing with a great ball club in 79. So finally, Willie Stardew and, um, and Bill um, and, and John Milner got hurt early in the season against Montreal, I had a start. And I think I went like three or four for five and had like two home runs against Scott Sanderson. And they said, wow, we didn't know he could hit like that. I, I, should, I, I knew I could hit like that. They just never gave me a shot to play, you know, enough. But they felt my defense wasn't as good as some of the other guys. But I knew I could hit. And if they put me out there long enough, my field was going to be adequate too, which they later found that out. So after the four for five game, they put me back in there again. I went three for four, two for four, five. Come June, I was hitting 350-something. They said, wow. And I had enough at-bats to qualify for the batting title and everything. But what happened is I ended up hitting 338. But during, as the season went on, Chuck Tanner used to take me out for defense. And that's the only – I think I was lacking 40 or 30 or 40 at-bats from winning the batting title because I hit 338, you know, the year before that year in eighty. So therefore, 81 came, we had a short season year. I think we had a lockout or something. So we didn't really play in Dallas Green, the manager for the Phillies, because they won it in 81. Uh, no, in 80, they ended up picking me. He picked me as an extra outfielder, and I was just totally and equivocally related. I mean, elated that he picked me. The only all-star team I made, I did in my hometown of Cleveland, Ohio. To me, that was the highest point of my career. I mean, that's the thing I remember more than anything else anything else. I got a picture in my office of uh, Dave Parker smoking the cigarette in that dugout there. I think mm -hmm. it's a famous picture now, but uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. obviously one of my favorites. You got any good um, Dave Parker stories in that 79 Pirates team? Is he the biggest character or is it something we don't even know? Is there another Let person? Let me tell you Dave Parker was the greatest teammate anybody could have in baseball. I mean, this man came to play baseball every single day. He was a gamer. He was, he wanted to win more than anybody else in that clubhouse. I used to call him the, uh, the Muhammad Ali of baseball. I mean, talk a lot of shit, talk shit to the reporters, talk shit to the fans. He just talked mess and he can back every bit of it. He said, I think he won like three batting titles, two or three batting titles. I mean, he was strong. He was a great outfielder. He had a great arm. He ran the bases. He stole bases. I mean, the guy is six, 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 seven. Weighed about 230, 240. I mean, he was all man. And he played the game harder than anybody I've ever been around. And uh, he was very strong. To me, he should be a strong candidate. You know, for you know, Hall of Fame character. I know he. I don't know what his numbers were totally, but I knew that he should be. You know, um, you know, I think he should be considered deeply for a Hall of Famer, at least, uh, what do you call it, when you don't get voted in, you know, the writers can put you in. I think mm -hmm. Dave Parker definitely, you know, you, you know, he, he was a Hall of Fame ball player. I don't care what nobody said. For a short time there, he was one of the best ball players in baseball. Mm 
period. And, you know, he's not the only one smoked cigarettes. A lot of guys smoke cigarettes. They just, <laughs> and more. Earl Weaver, Earl Weaver was the other one. He was at the, he called him six pack, you know, when he go in there and um, their relievers come in there. I forgot the reliever's name with the curly hair. He used to come in there and he said he smoked a pack of cigarettes every, every inning that that dude was out there. I forgot who the reliever was, but, you know, we were just human beings. We went out there and played the game hard. We loved the game with a passion. And Dave Parker was the leader, as I said, on the field. Well, he started was the leader in the clubhouse. So you had 10, I think I had it right, 10 years of summers in the minors. And I had a quote here from you. It says, it's nice to know that so many teams wanted me, but not nice to know so many didn't. <laughs> but I, I see your story as one of, of perseverance to, to stay with it that long. And then you finally get your shot. You, you, you turn into an all-star. You have a fantastic career, 293 career hitter, um, you know, playing for some really good teams throughout your career. So during that 10-year time period, before you really got your shot up in the majors, like what, what kept you going? You know, I just lost my wife, guys, August 15th. And I was married to my wife, Brenda, for 40, oh, no, 52 years we were married. Wow. And she was the wind beneath my wings. She kept me pushing me, driving me. And people don't realize Brenda Eastwood was Brenda Johnson, Cliff Johnson's sister. And I met him, you know, I met her when I was in the Houston organization. And we were married for 52 years. My wife helped motivate me, kept me going, kept driving me. And my father behind me, James Edward Eastler, he kept pushing and driving. Not only did I had 10 summers in um, in minor leagues, I had 10 summers in winter baseball also. I played six winters in Mexico, um, Los Mochis, Mexico. I played three winters in, in Maracaibo, Venezuela, and I played one winter in um, Panama. So I had 10 years of winter baseball. So I was actually summer and winter, I was playing for 10 years straight until I finally got my break in 1979. 1979 was the last year I went to winter ball of my career. And after that, I was just, you know, I became a player in the big league. So I just, I didn't have to go to winter ball anymore. But me going to Mexico and Venezuela, it taught me really how to become a complete hitter, how to hit breaking balls, how to use the whole field. Uh, it was, a, you know, it was hard. It was tough. But my wife, as I said, was with me, behind me. I had three girls. And I just I just wanted to play. And I just wasn't going to quit. I didn't care. I just knew that I could hit. I knew I could play with them. I've always felt that way. Even in high school, I felt that nothing could stop me. The only thing that could stop me was death. The only way I don't make it to the major leagues is if I died. <laughs> I hate to say it like that. But that's how driven I was to make it to the major leagues. And I finally did. Oh, awesome. The hitman, Michael Easler. Thank you so much for coming on tonight. We appreciate that. Well, I enjoyed it, Mike. I enjoyed you guys. Everyone in questions was excellent, super. I enjoy your knowledge of the game of baseball. And uh, the thing about it is, it's just a great game, you know, regardless of what they do now. And I look at the games and I just shake my head when I watch the hitters strike out and look, <laughs> look at pitches and take pitches and don't move the runner over and and managers not bunting and bunting situation. How can you put a guy at second base, nobody out, and you don't bunt him over? I mean, duh. That's just that, that's just basic fundamental baseball. I'm not going to say your third or fourth hitter don't have to do it, but I'm talking about these other guys, leadoff hitter, second hitter, seven, eight, nine hitter. They're supposed to be bunting that guy to third base. I'm sorry. That's just the way the game should be played. But 
everybody's just playing for the long ball, playing for the big inning. So, hey, it is what it is. So I enjoy the game. I love watching the game. And right now, I'm my focus on teaching young kids how to play the game. Um, I just had two first rounders that I helped get out of Las Vegas. For the Astros was Tyler Whitaker. He was um, most. Uh, he was number one pick for the Astros in 2021. And this year, um, 22, was um, Justin Crawford. His father was um, Carl Crawford, you know, with the Devil Rays. And he was number one for the Phillies. So I just had two number one kids that I worked with for a long time to get, you know, to sign major league contract number one. So I just enjoy teaching kids. And I got a few more coming up to long as God keep me alive, I'm going to keep coaching the basic fundamentals and how to hit the baseball the right way using the whole field. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I remind everybody, make sure you hit like and subscribe. Keep watching and we'll see y'all next time. Have a great night.